Section six of My Discovery of England by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oxford as I See It, Part two. I do not mean to say, however, that my judgment of Oxford is one undiluted stream of praise. In one respect, at least, I think that Oxford has fallen away from the high ideals of the Middle Ages. I refer to the fact that it admits women students to its studies. In the Middle Ages, women were regarded with a peculiar chivalry long since lost. It was taken for granted that their brains were too delicately poised to allow them to learn anything. It was presumed that their minds were so exquisitely hung that intellectual effort might disturb them. The present age has gone to the other extreme, and this is seen nowhere more than in the crowding of women into colleges originally designed for men. Oxford, I regret to find, has not stood out against this change. To a profound scholar like myself, the presence of these young women, many of them most attractive, flittering up and down the streets of Oxford in their caps and gowns, is very distressing. Who is to blame for this, and how they first got in, I do not know. But I understand that they first of all built a private college of their own close to Oxford, and then edged themselves in foot by foot. If this is so, they only followed up the precedent of the recognized method in use in America. When an American college is established, the women go and build a college of their own overlooking the grounds. Then they put on becoming caps and gowns, and stand and look over the fence at the college athletics. The male undergraduates, who were originally and by nature a hardy lot, were not easily disturbed, but inevitably some of the senior trustees fell in love with the first-year girls and became convinced that co-education was a noble cause. American statistics show that between 1880 and 1900 the number of trustees and senior professors who married girl undergraduates, or who wanted to do so, reached a percentage of, I forget the exact percentage, it was either a hundred or a little over. I don't know just what happened at Oxford, but presumably something of the sort took place. In any case, the women are now all over the place. They attend the college lectures, they row in a boat, and they perambulate the high street. They are even offering a serious competition against the men. Last year they carried off the ping-pong championship and took the Chancellor's Prize for needlework, while in music, cooking, and millinery the men are said to be nowhere. There is no doubt that unless Oxford puts the women out while there is yet time, they will overrun the whole university. What this means to the progress of learning few can tell, and those who know are afraid to say. Cambridge University, I am glad to see, still sets its face sternly against this innovation. I am reluctant to count any superiority in the University of Cambridge. Having twice visited Oxford, having made the place a subject of profound study for many hours at a time, having twice addressed its undergraduates, and having stayed at the Mitre Hotel, I consider myself an Oxford man. But I must admit that Cambridge has chosen the wiser part. Last autumn, while I was in London on my voyage of discovery, a vote was taken at Cambridge to see if the women who have already a private college nearby should be admitted to the university. They were triumphantly shut out, 
and as a fit and proper sign of enthusiasm, the undergraduates went over in a body and knocked down the gates of the women's college. I know that it is a terrible thing to say that anyone approved of this. All the London papers came out with headings that read, Are our undergraduates turning into baboons? And so on. The Manchester Guardian draped its pages in black, and even the London Morning Post was afraid to take bold ground in the matter. But I do know also that there was a great deal of secret chuckling and jubilation in the London clubs. Nothing was expressed openly. The men of England have been too terrorized by the women for that. But in safe corners of the club, out of earshot of the waiters and away from casual strangers, little groups of elderly men chuckled quietly together. Knocked down their gates, eh? said the wicked old men to one another, and then whispered guiltily behind an uplifted hand, Serve em right. Nobody dared to say anything outside. If they had, someone would have got up and asked a question in the House of Commons. When this is done, all England falls flat upon its face. But for my part, when I heard of the Cambridge vote, I felt as Lord Chatham did when he said in Parliament, Sir, I rejoice that America has resisted. For I have long harbored views of my own upon the higher education of women. In these days, however, it requires no little hardihood to utter a single word of criticism against it. It is like throwing half a brick through the glass roof of a conservatory. It is bound to make trouble. Let me hasten, therefore, to say that I believe most heartily in the higher education of women. In fact, the higher the better. The only question to my mind is, what is higher education, and how do you get it? With which goes the secondary inquiry, what is a woman, and is she just the same as a man? I know that it sounds a terrible thing to say in these days, but I don't believe she is. Let me say also that when I speak of co-education, I speak of what I know. I was co-educated myself some thirty-five years ago, at the very beginning of the thing. I learned my Greek alongside of a bevy of beauty on the opposite benches that mashed up the irregular verbs for us very badly. Incidentally, those girls are all married long since, and all the Greek they know now you could put under a thimble, but of that presently. I have had further experience as well. I spent three years in the graduate school of Chicago, where coeducational girls were as thick as autumn leaves, and some thicker and as a college professor at McGill University in Montreal, I have taught mingled classes of men and women for twenty years. On the basis of which experience I say with assurance that the thing is a mistake and has nothing to recommend it but its relative cheapness. Let me emphasize this last point and have done with it. Coeducation is of course a great economy, to teach ten men and ten women in a single class of twenty costs only half as much as to teach two classes. Where economy must rule, then, the thing has got to be. But where the discussion turns not on what is cheapest, but on what is best, then the case is entirely different. The fundamental trouble is that men and women are different creatures, with different minds and different aptitudes and different paths in life. There is no need to raise here the question of which is superior and which is inferior, though I think, the Lord help me, I know the answer to that too. The point lies in the fact that they are different. 
but the mad passion for equality has masked this obvious fact when women began to demand quite rightly a share in higher education they took for granted that they wanted the same curriculum as the men they never stopped to think whether their aptitudes were not in various directions higher and better than those of the men and whether it might not be better for their sex to cultivate the things which were best suited to their minds let me be more explicit in all that goes with physical and mathematical science women on the average are far below the standard of men there are of course exceptions but they prove nothing it is no use to quote to me the case of some brilliant girl who stood first in physics at cornell that's nothing there is an elephant in the zoo that can count up to ten yet i refuse to reckon myself his inferior tabulated results spread over years and the actual experience of those who teach show that in the whole domain of mathematics and physics women are outclassed at mcgill the girls of our first year have wept over their failures in elementary physics these twenty-five years it is time that someone dried their tears and took away the subject but in any case examination tests are never the whole story to those who know a written examination is far from being a true criterion of capacity it demands too much of mere memory imitativeness and the insidious willingness to absorb other people's ideas parrots and crows would do admirably in examinations indeed the colleges are full of them but take on the other hand all that goes with the aesthetic side of education with imaginative literature and the cult of beauty here women are or at least ought to be the superiors of men women were in primitive times the first story-tellers they are still so at the cradle side the original college woman was the witch with her incantations and her prophecies and the glow of her bright imagination and if brutal men of duller brains had not burned it out of her she would be incanting still to my thinking we need more witches in the colleges and less physics i have seen such young witches myself if i may keep the word i like it in colleges such as wellesley in massachusetts and bryn mawr in pennsylvania where there isn't a man allowed within the three-mile limit to my mind they do infinitely better thus by themselves they are freer less restrained they discuss things openly in their classes they lift up their voices and they speak whereas a girl in such a place as mcgill with men all about her sits for four years as silent as a frog full of shot but there is a deeper trouble still the careers of the men and the women who go to college together are necessarily different and the preparation is all aimed at the man's career the men are going to be lawyers doctors engineers business men and politicians and the women are not there is no use pretending about it it may sound an awful thing to say but the women are going to be married that is and always has been their career and what is more they know it and even at college while they are studying algebra and political economy they have their eye on it sideways all the time the plain fact is that after a girl has spent four years of her time and a great deal of her parents money in equipping herself for a career that she is never going to have the wretched creature goes and gets married and in a few years she has forgotten which is the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle and she doesn't care she has much better things to think of 
at this point someone will shriek but surely even for marriage isn't it right that a girl should have a college education to which i hasten to answer most assuredly i freely admit that a girl who knows algebra or once knew it is a far more charming companion and a nobler wife and mother than a girl who doesn't know x from y but the point is this does the higher education that fits a man to be a lawyer also fit a person to be a wife and mother or in other words is a lawyer a wife and mother i say he is not granted that a girl is to spend four years in time and four thousand dollars in money in going to college why train her for a career that she is never going to adopt why not give her an education that will have a meaning and a harmony with the real life that she is to follow for example suppose that during her four years every girl lucky enough to get a higher education spent at least six months of it in the training and discipline of a hospital as a nurse there is more education and character making in that than in a whole bucketful of algebra but no the woman insists on snatching her share of an education designed by erasmus or william of wycombe or william of ockham for the creation of scholars and lawyers and when later in her home there is a sudden sickness or accident and the life or death of those nearest to her hangs upon skill and knowledge and a trained fortitude in emergency she must needs send in all haste for a hired woman to fill the place that she herself has never learned to occupy but i am not here trying to elaborate a whole curriculum i am only trying to indicate that higher education for the man is one thing for the woman another nor do i deny the fact that women have got to earn their living their higher education must enable them to do that they cannot all marry on their graduation day but that is no great matter no scheme of education that any one is likely to devise will fail in this respect the positions that they hold as teachers or civil servants they would fill all the better if their education were fitted to their wants some few a small minority really and truly have a career husbandless and childless in which the sacrifice is great and the honor to them perhaps all the higher and others no doubt dream of a career in which a husband and a group of blossoming children are carried as an appendage to a busy life at the bar or on the platform but all such are the mere minority so small as to make no difference to the general argument but there i have written quite enough to make plenty of trouble except perhaps at cambridge university so i return with relief to my general study of oxford viewing the situation as a whole i am led then to the conclusion that there must be something in the life of oxford itself that makes for higher learning smoked at by his tutor fed in henry the eighth's kitchen and sleeping in a tangle of ivy the student evidently gets something not easily obtained in america and the more i reflect on the matter the more i am convinced that it is the sleeping in the ivy that does it how different it is from student life as i remember it when i was a student in the university of toronto thirty years ago i lived from start to finish in seventeen different boarding-houses as far as i am aware these houses have not or not yet been marked with tablets but they are still to be found in the vicinity of mccall and darcy and st patrick streets any one who doubts the truth of what i have to say may go and look at them 
I was not alone in the nomadic life that I led. There were hundreds of us drifting about in this fashion from one melancholy habitation to another. We lived as a rule two or three in a house, sometimes alone. We dined in the basement. We always had beef, done up in the same way after it was dead, and there were always soda biscuits on the table. They used to have a brand of soda biscuits in those days in the Toronto boarding houses that I have not seen since. They are better than dog biscuits, but with not so much snap. My contemporaries will all remember them. A great many of the leading barristers and professional men of Toronto were fed on them. In the life we led, we had practically no opportunities for association on a large scale, no common rooms, no reading rooms, nothing. We never saw the magazines. Personally, I didn't even know the names of them. The only interchange of ideas we ever got was by going over to the Care Howell Hotel on University Avenue and interchanging them there. I mention these melancholy details not for their own sake, but merely to emphasize the point that when I speak of students' dormitories and the larger life which they offer, I speak of what I know. If we had had at Toronto, when I was a student, the kind of dormitories and dormitory life that they have at Oxford, I don't think I ever would have graduated. I'd have been there still. The trouble is that the universities on our continent are only just waking up to the idea of what a university should mean. They were, very largely, instituted and organized with the idea that a university was a place where young men were sent to absorb the contents of books and to listen to lectures in the classrooms. The student was pictured as a pallid creature, burning what was called the midnight oil, his wan face bent over his desk. If you wanted to do something for him, you gave him a book. If you wanted to do something really large on his behalf, you gave him a whole basketful of them. If you wanted to go still further and be a benefactor to the college at large, you endowed a competitive scholarship and set two or more pallid students working themselves to death to get it. The real thing for the student is the life and environment that surrounds him. All that he really learns, he learns in a sense, by the active operation of his own intellect, and not as the passive recipient of lectures. And for this active operation, what he really needs most is the continued and intimate contact with his fellows. Students must live together and eat together, talk and smoke together. Experience shows that that is how their minds really grow. And they must live together in a rational and comfortable way. They must eat in a big dining room or hall, with oak beams across the ceiling, and the stained glass in the windows, and with a shield or tablet here and there upon the wall, to remind them between times of the men who went before them, and left a name worthy of the memory of the college. If a student is to get from his college what it ought to give him, a college dormitory, with the life in common that it brings, is his absolute right. A university that fails to give it to him is cheating him. If I were founding a university, and I say it with all the seriousness of which I am capable, I would found first a smoking room, then when I had a little more money in hand I would found a dormitory, then after that, or more probably with it, a decent reading room and a library. After that, if I still had money over that I couldn't use, 
I would hire a professor and get some textbooks. This chapter has sounded in the most part like a continuous eulogy of Oxford, with but little in favor of our American colleges. I turn therefore with pleasure to the more congenial task of showing what is wrong with Oxford and with the English university system generally, and the aspect in which our American universities far excel the British. The point is that Henry the Eighth is dead. The English are so proud of what Henry the Eighth and the benefactors of earlier centuries did for the universities that they forget the present. There is little or nothing in England to compare with the magnificent generosity of individuals, provinces, and states which is building up the colleges of the United States and Canada. There used to be, but by some strange confusion of thought, the English people admire the noble gifts of Cardinal Wolsey and Henry the Eighth and Queen Margaret, and do not realize that the Carnegies and Rockefellers and the William MacDonalds are the Cardinal Wolseys of today. The University of Chicago was founded upon oil. McGill University rests largely on a basis of tobacco. In America, the world of commerce and business levies on itself a noble tribute in favor of the higher learning. In England, with a few conspicuous exceptions, such as that at Bristol, there is little of the sort. The feudal families are content with what their remote ancestors have done, they do not try to emulate it in any great degree. In the long run, this must count. Of all the various forms that are talked of at Oxford, and of all the imitations of American methods that are suggested, the only one worth while, to my thinking, is to capture a few millionaires, give them honorary degrees at a million pounds sterling apiece, and tell them to imagine that they are Henry the Eighth. I give Oxford warning that if this is not done, the place will not last another two centuries. End of section 6